This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. The Apostle Paul talked about how he, I believe it's through the church in Corinth, in reviewing his work there, he said, I caught you with guile. I tricked you, but I got you. Okay? That's what I was going for with the title of this seminar, The Real Emerging Church. Now, I know when you hear that language, emerging church, already you have a picture coming to mind. Oh, man, I'm going to hear about contemplative prayer, breath prayer, um, some other prayer thing. Uh, I'm going to hear about candles and incense and labyrinths and spirituality and mysticism. All of that, by the way, I'm not saying that that's not a problem. I'm fu- you wrestle with that as you will. But that's not the emerging church we're talking about here. Okay? The real, now, that might be, and all seriousness, there are people who address that issue, study it out for yourself, be, be an informed person. That's no problem. But the real emerging church that I'm discussing here is the one that has already emerged in the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's not a danger out on the horizon. It's the one that's already here and we need to be aware of. And many of us are completely numb to the fact that it's occurring. Okay, the real emerging church is the one we're going to address today. Now, out of curiosity, raise your hand if you were here at the last, oh, sorry, raise your hand if you were not here at the last session. <sighs> All right. You are forgiven. <laughs> All right, but we're going to build on some of the principles that we had last time, so if it's confusing, you're like, how, do you, how dare you say that? Well, you've got to go, you know, listen to the other one, get the other stuff. But we're going to continue now. The, I've been promised that handouts are still coming. At the end of this session, they should be available. So please take out your Bibles. You'll need your own paper. I wish I could provide some for you now. Take out pens or whatever. We're going to be studying the Word of God. And we're going to be doing a bit of uh, sampling of Adventist church history, the Spirit of Prophecy. We're going to be all over the place. But uh, before we do any study, of course, what's the first thing we need to do? Let's do so now. Bow our heads, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us instruction in your word. And Lord, now we ask for understanding of that word and application of its principles and practices in our own life. Help us to be faithful and useful for you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Seventh-day Adventist evangelism, when you're talking about the state of the dead, I don't care where you've been, if it's a small group, Bible study, one-on-one, or in a big public campaign, everywhere you go, every evangelist, if he's worth his salt, is going to have to explain the misplaced comma in Jesus' conversation with a thief on the cross, correct? Right? If you change that one comma, which of course commas were not there, and punctuation wasn't there in the original, but you, you have to, that's there, you've got to deal with it, right? The Bible writers, I mean the Bible translators put that in there, and so now we're stuck with it. That's what we do. And of course, one version says, today you will be with me in paradise, and the other one says, when I come in paradise, I'll bring you with me. The sense of the sentence changes with that one comma. It's the difference between, it's time to eat, Grandpa, (laughs) versus, it's time to eat, Grandpa. Same exact words in the exact same order, but that little comma, that emphasis changes the meaning, yes? We're all very aware of that misplaced comma. But there's another one that I want to make you aware of, probably in your Bibles today. Please go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Starting with verse 11, hopefully a very familiar passage to all of us here. It begins with, and he himself 
And of course, the he that we're talking about here is Christ and his establishment of the church, which was a big part of our last time, right? And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Clearly, he's defining different job descriptions, different titles of positions of leadership in the church, and not everybody is all of those things, but we have some apostles, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. You get the picture. Now the critical part comes in verse 12. For what purpose? Now, I'm going to read this to you from the King James. How many of you have a King James here today? It's a great translation of the Bible. But please understand, punctuation is not inspired. (laughs) Watch this now. For what purpose does he have all these different jobs in the church? For the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. How many jobs do these people have? Three. How do you know? The comma tells me so. Their first job is to perfect the saints. Then, either when they're done with that or at the same time, they should also be working on another project, doing the work of ministry. And in their spare time, they should be edifying the body of Christ. Do you see that in the sense of the thing? You have these people do these things for this purpose, for perfecting the saints, for the... And it lists out three different jobs, the work of ministry, the edifying the body of Christ. Now, watch what the New King James does. How many New King Jamers do we have in here? Not that your allegiance is there. You just happen to have a Bible in your hand that's New King James, right? Same verse, verse 12 now from the New King James. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Do you see the difference? How many jobs do we have listed? Two. For the edifying, of the, uh, for the perf- equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, I know this is going to be heresy, but I think that's even still slightly incorrect, even though we're getting better. I think the New International Version (gasps) (laughs) sums up the meaning most accurately. Watch this now. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. One job. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built. The building up of the body of Christ is simply the result of everybody working, which is what the job of the leadership is, is to get them working so that the body is built up. Now, how do I, how do I have the audacity to stand here and say that the King James, in this particular instance, not in the wording, not, I'm not getting into that, but in the punctuation, has given us improper reading of the text? How do you determine a text's validity? Well, you look at the context, do you not? As we talked about in the last, most of the Bible problems that we have would be solved if you have this one simple principle. Just keep reading. Just keep reading. So let's go back, and I'm reading from the New King James, with the same wording as basically in the King James as well. But if you go back to the context of this passage, we'll just start with verse 12 again. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. From whom, and remember the whole thing started, 
how it was he himself who gave these. We're still talking about our headship of Christ in the church. No problem with that, but watch this. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what? By what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It's right there in the context. The way that the church grows and stays healthy, both doctrinally and evangelistically, and all the things that we're tasked with doing is not by having people do it for us, but by having those people train us so we can be workers. Let's be clear on this. This is what the Apostle Paul had in mind. If we just keep reading, we see that. Let's look at uh, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. In the T section there. Chapter 4 and verse 1. I don't know if any of you have ever been to an ordination service. For a minister of the gospel in the Seventh-day Adventist church, typically they happen at camp meeting time. It's a big deal. And every single time, I promise you, you will hear or see this printed or spoken, this passage. It's Paul's charge to his protege, Timothy, and it begins in verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. That's quite a, pro, a, a preamble, is it not? And what does he say to do? Preach the word. Mm. And every time we hear that, with amen. And if the churches are having to go through difficulty, they're like, man, we need a pastor in here. Is he going to preach the word? Right? Preach the word. Here's my question. To whom? Let's just keep reading. Because notice right there, there was a temptation to start speculating, and I got an opinion. Just keep reading. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. The question is still undermined. Whom? For the time will come when they, who are they? <laughs> will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of a what? of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Question for you, who do evangelists preach to? Believers or non-believers? Church members or prospective church members? Now, sure, they can preach to the local church. I'm talking to you right now, and I'm not offended. That's fine to talk to each other. What's the primary role that Paul is giving him? Go preach to the churches I've already set up or go set up new ones by being an evangelist? Preach the word. Be an evangelist. Which brings me to this first statement. We're going to, I, I almost guarantee that you're going to hear more references to the spirit of prophecy in this particular seminar session than you've ever heard in one hour in your life. Here's the first one. The Upward Look, page 264. UL264. My brethren and sisters, there is something more for you to do than to sit in your churches Sabbath after Sabbath and listen to the preaching of the word. You have a work to do for your friends and neighbors. God requires. Anytime God requires, you should tune in, yes? <laughs> she continues, that you visit these families and seek to create an interest for the truth at this time. Praise the Lord. Excellent. Notes are here. I don't know how to distribute them, but we'll just keep going. <laughs> in fact, let's use this as a teaching moment. I'm not going to distribute them. I'm going to get you to distribute them. <laughs> Amen? 
If you were here at the last seminar, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. The Lord intervened to teach us a lesson at this time. And he's not going to do it by himself. He's going to get some other people to do it. So we're going to do it very quickly. And I'm wasting my time even talking about it. Here we go. Back to our statement, the Upper Look 264. God requires that you visit these families and seek to create an interest in the truth for this time. You are not laboring together with God if you neglect the work of helping others to take hold upon eternal realities. Eternal realities. Here's the sentence I want you to hear. Well, I want you to hear all of them, but you know what I'm saying. Our ministers are not to be encouraged to hover about the churches to repeat to the believers week after week the same truths. Preach the word, and everyone in the audience says, yes, we need a pastor to come to us and preach us. That's not what he's talking about. Preach the word. I don't know, I didn't even look at the handouts. Are you getting session one? Who fed the 5,000? Study that later, but pay attention now, okay? Hopefully another one is coming. They're redeeming the time, but we're going to keep marching, okay? Let's go to the book of Titus. Disregard the worksheet for now. Titus, chapter 1. Still in the T section, just a few pages over. Titus, chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, to another protege, says in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Now you get the picture that Paul has apparently been traveling with Titus, and at some point, Paul kept going, and he said, no, you stay here. Why did he leave him there? Well, he tells him, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. So apparently there was a lack of order that needed to be corrected. You get the picture that Paul has been on an evangelistic campaign. He's been on a missionary journey. He's preached the word. People have been convicted, converted, and ready to go. And then they're just kind of a disorganized mess, and he leaves. He said, now, Titus, you stay back. The reason I left you there was to put things in order. I needed to keep doing this, but I've appointed you over this business. Very Acts chapter 6-ish, right? I've appointed you over this business. And how do you put things in order in the local church? And appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. He's, I've already taught you this, but now I want you to go put it in practice in Crete. And I want you to organize all the churches, but that doesn't mean I want you to pastor all the churches. I want you to organize the churches, and in your place, I want you to set up elders in every church. In every city. Interesting. So notice that Titus wasn't left there for one church, for one job. No, no, no. Your job is to go organize this area, this district, this territory, and appoint elders and make sure that they're running, operating well for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. That's what he's supposed to do. Over and over we see this. Now we're going to go to Seventh-day Adventist church history. In 1886, now I'm going to walk this through just a little bit. This isn't dramatic. This is not acting. I'm literally just going to walk a little bit, but it's going to help you. I'm going to be a timeline, a living timeline. We'll start here with early and over there is later, or more recent, shall we say. Okay. 1886, Elder G.B. Starr was asked by the Wabash Indiana Plains dealer about the growth of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You remember the Seventh-day Adventist Church was only officially organized in 1863, so this is only 20-plus years after that organization, and already they were just growing profusely. And much, enough so that a, a, a secular press, a secular newspaper man, had to interview one of our church leaders at that time and say, how are you guys pulling this off? That was his question. Um, 
By what means have you carried forward your work so rapidly, was the exact wording. And the answer was this. Well, in the first place, we have no settled pastors. <laughs> he said, well, let me think. The very first thing I can think to say is, well, we don't have any settled pastors. Our churches are taught to take care of themselves, while nearly all our ministers work as evangelists in new fields. That was 1886. Let's go forward. This is not proportional. You understand? 1912. General Conference President A.G. Daniels. Making an address, I believe it was in uh, Los Angeles at the time. We have not settled our ministers over churches as pastors to any large extent. Do you see a difference? 1886, none. Here, very few, but some. In some of the very large churches, we have elected pastors. But as a rule, we have held ourselves ready for field service, evangelistic work, and our brethren and sisters have held themselves ready to maintain their church services and carry forward their church work without settled pastors. And I hope, as he looks to the future, I hope this will never cease to be the order of affairs in this denomination. For when we cease our forward movement, forward movement work and begin to settle over our churches to stay by them and do their thinking and their praying and their work that is to be done, then our churches will begin to weaken and to lose their life and spirit and become paralyzed and fossilized and our work will be on a retreat. Mm. Let's go forward. 1957, HMS Richard Sr. Speaking to some seminary students at the time. The time of too many of our preachers, instead of being occupied with carrying the message into new fields, is taken up in settling church difficulties and laboring for men and women who should be towers of strength instead of subjects for labor. And then he goes way back in his time machine, right? When I was baptized and later became a young preacher, we looked upon churches, and by that he does not mean other local Seventh-day Adventist churches, he's talking about other denominations of churches, right? We looked upon churches that had to have settled pastors over every flock as being decadent. Most of our preachers were out on the firing line, holding meetings, winning men to Christ, and raising up new churches. Then, every few months, they would come around and visit the churches that had already been established. This seemed to be, according to our view of it, the plan of the apostolic church. 1957. He's starting to lament something he's seeing change, or, for the purpose of today, emerge in the Seventh-day Adventist church. 1994. This is from the Seventh-day Adventist Elder's Handbook, page 23. It's not the one you'll go find now. The one you find now is blue. That one was green. Okay. But if you have the green one, you'll find this statement on page 23. If you have the blue one, you're out of luck. <laughs> During the Middle Ages, the clergy largely took over the work of the church. 
The Seventh-day Adventist Church still struggles to overcome that medieval tradition and seeks to restore the biblical concept that all believers are ministers. Members in general, and elders in particular, need a greater vision of their significance and responsibility in the church and its work. So in 1994, they're looking at this train of history and they like, somehow, we've gotten off track and become pastor-dependent in our local churches. We need to train our members, and the elders in particular, to be the leaders in their local churches. Okay. Now, I went to make this presentation, this exact presentation, at a place, and I forgot to bring my green elder's handbook. So I said, I'll just run to the ABC and pick up another copy. And it was the blue elder's handbook. <laughs> Which there's not, I'm not saying the blue elder's handbook is wrong. I'm not saying it's awful. It is uninspired. <laughs> Amen? It's a, it's a great guide, it's great principles, there's great things in it. And I still train my elders from it. But that's my caveat. 2013, the new one. This is on page 28. See if you notice a change in tenor here. The Seventh Adventist Church is growing rapidly, and many churches are understaffed. What is that? What is that code for? What does that mean? Understaffed. They don't have enough pastors for all these churches. Watch this now. In such situations. There may be large multi-church districts where pastors are shared among several churches and, it is, and is able to visit each church only once every two or three months. If you remember that every few months, that's what HMS Richards in 1957 was saying when he remembered, that's what the typical was. Now it's in those poor understaffed churches. It is the faithful service of local elders that helps keep these churches strong and growing. The implication is, as soon as they're properly staffed, whew, good. This, friends, I believe, is the real emerging church. And again, nothing against contemplative prayer and mysticism. I think those are valid things to study and be aware of, sure. But this is the one that's already emerged. This is the one we're in right now. It's not just a danger on the horizon. It's here. And I can almost guarantee it's in your local church. Evangelism, page 381. Thus begins our train of statements. From the pen of inspiration. Evangelism, page 381. If the proper instruction were given, if the proper methods were followed, every church member would do his work as a member of the body. He would do Christian missionary work. But the churches are dying, and they want a minister to preach to them. The statement continues. They should be taught that unless they can stand alone without a minister, they need to be converted anew and baptized anew. Rebaptism. I don't know if she was meaning that literally or just using large language, but either way, I mean, it's a serious issue. They need to be born again, she says. Ministry of Healing, page 149. Every church should be a training school for Christian workers. Its members should be taught how to give Bible readings, how to conduct and teach Sabbath school classes. Don't even let me start on that. We're doing good to get a teacher, much less train a teacher to actually do teaching. Yes? 
When was the last time you had a how to teach a Sabbath school lesson? Anyway. How best to help the poor and to care for the sick. How to work for the unconverted. Work for the unconverted, care for the poor and the sick, teaching of Sabbath school, all these things that she's listed were supposed to be done by the membership, not by the conference-appointed leadership. The conference-appointed leadership was to get them to do their work. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 7, pages 19 and 20. The greatest help that can be given our people is to teach them to work for God and to depend on him, not on the ministers. Let the minister devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. Let him teach the people how to give to others the knowledge they have received. The implication is every member of the church has already received the message, and there's no problem continuing to learn the message. Everyone should be an ongoing student of the scriptures, But do you get it from your minister or do you get it from your daily devotions between you and the Lord and his inspired word? The implication is you've heard the message, you're in the message, you're strong in the message, now give it to somebody else. Pacific Union Recorder, April 24, 1902. Oh, what a work there is before us. Our ministers are not to hover over those who have received the message. Just as soon as a church is organized, let the minister set the members to work. The newly formed churches will need to be educated. The minister should devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. He should teach the people how to extend the knowledge of the truth. Church should be school. We're going to come back to that in a little bit, but I want to plant that in your mind. Your church should be a school to train you to do something for the Lord. By the way, you see that this something is not just smiling at your neighbor. It's aggressive, intentional, intelligent evangelism by our lay members. Lay members. Okay. Oh, excellent. Thank you again. These are, these, are the these are the new ones, yes. They're probably still warm from the press. Okay. All right. Atlantic Union Gleaner, January 8, 1902. The same year as the Pacific Union Quarter, this time on the other side, the other ocean. The Atlantic Union Gleaner, January 8, 1902. And I believe we're on page two if you have your handouts now, okay? Towards the bottom. There should not be a call to have settled pastors over our churches. But let the life-giving power of the truth impress the individual members to act, leading them to labor interestedly to carry on efficient missionary work in each locality. As the hand of God, the church is to be educated and trained to do effective service. Its members are to be the Lord's devoted Christian workers. I fear that in the church structure that we now have, not the structure itself, but what we've built, what we've come to believe that it is, that we have a church full of watchers and the workers are few. Review and Herald, October 22, 1889. If church members are educated to be silent and useless members, instead of benefiting the church, they will be a hindrance to its advancement and growth. Now, I'll pause right here. I used to, I used to think it was such a powerful line to say, Every church should be a training center. And then it dawned on me after reading this statement that every church already is a training center. 
The question is, what are we training the people to do? Look at the, look at the statement again. Start it. You've got it in your hand. You can do that now. Right? If church members are educated to be what? Silent and useless. The implication is you have to be taught how to be quiet and useless. It doesn't come naturally. The natural converted heart wants to talk to everybody. Yes? You can't hold it in. Somehow Seven Davin's long-term members are real good at holding in. What happened? They have gone through a course of education. They've been taught to be silent and useless. Well, but this, is it, to me, there's a lot of good news in there. Have you ever met someone who's a brand new convert? Who just came through their first revelation seminar? They can't keep their mouth shut. Everywhere they go, they're like, somebody they're at their workplace, how about that game? And he's like, how about the mark of the beast? I'll tell you what, you know. <laughs> you need to know about, you know about the thing, book of Revelation. The seals are open, my friends. And I tell you, and they just, and they don't know all the jargon. They've heard one sermon on the mark of the beast, but they can't keep their mouth shut, right? You can't get a devoted seven Davinus long-term member to tell anybody about the mark of the beast. What happened? You know what happens. They learn by example. And they just come to find their place, they find their pew, they settle in, and they quiet and calm down. Nobody says, shh, don't tell. No one's going to say that. But the cold blanket gets wrapped around them either way. They settle in. Look at a guy six months after his conversion and come back in six years. Where's the zeal? Come back another six years. Then he might even hold an office by then. In a position to further educate new converts. In such a situation, it's amazing that there even are new converts anymore. The Ministry of Healing, page 147. Everywhere there's a tendency to substitute the work of organizations for individual effort. Human wisdom tends to consolidation, to centralization, to the building up of great churches and institutions. Multitudes leave to institutions and organizations the work of benevolence, which simply means doing good for others. They excuse themselves from contact with the world and their hearts grow cold. They become self-absorbed and unimpressible. Love for God and man dies out of the soul. Christ commits to his followers an individual work, a work that cannot be done by proxy. Ministry to the sick and the poor, the giving of the gospel to the lost, is not to be left to committees or organized charities. Individual responsibility, individual effort, personal sacrifice is the requirement of the gospel. How many times have I thought, well, the good thing is I don't have to really give bread to my neighbor. I'm just going to give a dollar to Adra. Nothing wrong with Adra. Throwing that out there. But is that the work we're called to do? It's just from a distance. No. So I'm saying give your dollar to Adra and go bring bread to your neighbor. Right? But there has to be personal. Personal. I don't have to go win a soul. We got an evangelist coming in seven months. I'll pray for his success. It's very nice, and honestly, it's a very good thing to do. 
but it can also be a very pious excuse for not doing anything. You should look up prayer and work sometimes. Put those two words in conjunction when you put it in your little app or your little CD-ROM. Pray and then get up and work. There's an statement where she says, prayer can never take the place of duty. There you go. Evangelism, page 382. If the ministers would get out of the way, her words, not mine. If the ministers would get out of the way, if they would go forth into new fields, the members would be obliged to bear responsibilities and their capabilities would increase by what? Use. Often when you say, why don't you go win a soul? Why don't you go give a Bible study? Why don't you go share the message? Why don't you do something? You'll hear these kind of responses. Well, first of all, you hear a very pious sounding one. That's not my gift. (laughs) And they know it's true because they took an inventory. They took a checklist. They might have taken a little online quiz to tell you what your spiritual gift is. In this regard, our Theology of spiritual gifts is killing the church. As Mark Finley, see I'm throwing out that name, it's not me saying it's him, right? Witnessing is not a gift. Think about it, in the, in the Christian life, sharing the gospel with others is standard equipment that just comes. It's not a thing like, oh, we have special witnesser people over here, I just come to church. No, you don't, everybody's a worker. But we've taken that out of the realm, and that's somebody else's job. My job is to hope they do well. Right? Okay, and notice that their capabilities would increase. The implication is, number one, that their capabilities are pretty low. Let's be honest. Because they've believed that they don't have the gift, they haven't exercised what isn't a gift, and they don't have, their muscles have atrophied. You probably aren't good at giving Bible studies. <laughs> so before I send you out, i got to teach you how to go out effectively, yes? Now, I don't know of many good physical therapists who, if they found a lame leg or had been in a cast for you know, six months or something like that, and the leg muscle had atrophied and shriveled up and become weak, that they would say, oh, you know what? The best diagnosis for that leg is bed rest. Don't put any weight on it. Don't, don't stretch it. Don't do anything. Just sit tight and... No, what are they going to say? Exercise. Now don't go run an Ironman. <laughs> You're not there yet. But start with what you have and build on it. Do a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more. And daily, weekly, monthly, you become what God intends you to be. Apparently, even in the spiritual realm, capabilities increase by use. If you go out and you're not good at door knocking, don't say, oh, that validates my concern. I'm not gifted. No. It's evidence you need to go do it again until you get it right. Review and Herald, July 16, 1908. There are many who have never heard from the word, uh, never heard from the word, the reasons for our faith, and yet some of our ministers feel a burden to hover over little companies of believers in an effort to hold them together. The best way to hold them together is to induce them to maintain a living connection with God and to exert their influence in seeking to draw others to him. The best thing you can do is, you know, oblige, induce. Those are not comfortable words. You know, if, if someone's giving birth and they have to induce labor, it's painful. 
and you might get kickback from your church. You're not doing your job well, pastor. No, you're just uncomfortable and you don't like the therapy. It's good for you. Let's see here. I believe we're on Gospel Workers, page 197. Is that correct? Okay. In some respects, the pastor occupies a position similar to that of the foreman of a gang of laboring men or the captain of a ship's crew. They are expected to see that the men over whom they are set do the work assigned to them correctly and promptly, and only in case of emergency are they to execute in detail. She gives an example of this. The owner of a large mill once found his superintendent in a wheel pit making some simple repairs. Now, I want you to get straight. The owner comes in, and he's hired a superintendent who superintends other laborers. Yes? There's a chain of commanders. So the owner comes in, finds his superintendent where? In the wheel pit making some simple repairs. While a half dozen workmen in the line were standing by idly looking on. So you get the picture. Here's the one guy in the pit who's the superintendent. He's doing all the work, and the others are standing around watching. Getting paid, no doubt. She comes to that in a minute. Okay, but watch this. The proprietor, that is the owner, after learning the facts so as to be sure that no injustice was done, called the foreman to his office and handed him his discharge with full pay. Think about that. I saw you working. Yeah, I was working really hard. In fact, you interrupted me. I need to get back to work. Oh, yeah, before you go, real quick, you're fired. What? Wouldn't you be shocked? You're working. You're the only one working. You're slaving away. And you're the one who gets fired? I want an explanation. In surprise, the foreman asked for an explanation. I, it was given in these words, I employed you to keep six men at work. I found the six idle and you doing the work of but one. Your work could have been done just as well by any one of the six. We'll come back to that in a second. Just as well by any one of the six. I cannot afford to pay the wages of seven, so I got seven paychecks standing around right there, only one of them doing work, cannot afford to pay the wages of seven for you to, what's that word? Teach. He wasn't teaching, he was just in a wheel pit doing the work. But was he teaching? Teaching how? By his example. That's right. By his work, he was teaching how not to work. I cannot afford to pay the wages of seven for you to teach the six how to be idle. This incident may be applicable in some cases and, and not in others. She's not saying every church is like this, but she had enough of a concern that she wrote it down. But many pastors fail in not knowing how or, not in try, or in not trying to get the full membership of the church actively engaged in the various departments of church work. If pastors would give more attention to getting and keeping their flock actively engaged at work, they would accomplish more good, have more time for study and religious visiting, and also avoid many causes of friction. And an amazing, look at, the, look at the things that would be remedied by this change in thinking. Okay, First of all, more good just in general, right? 
have more time for study, you might get, when he does come around, you'll get better sermons out of him. And religious visiting. I don't know if that means to the members or the non-members, but there'd be more personal work by the pastor if other people were doing personal work. And also avoid many causes of friction. Review and Herald, August 26, 1902. Our ministers are to go forth. Oh, I forgot we were going to talk about that. Maybe you've done just as well. There is another subtle implication is here. Well, I would do the work, but we have a pastor, and he does it much better than I do. Right? I mean, I, I, I totally could give a Bible study, but this is what he gets paid to do. That's his thing, right? So, and my question is, is that what he gets paid to do? As an individual Christian, he should be giving Bible studies because that's what every Christian should do. But as his job, his job is not to do them for you. His job is to train you how to do them for others. Your job could be done just as well by any one of the six. Don't think that your pastor is Superman and can do spiritual things better. That's why we have, that's a priest. That's not what we have. We have pastors. And there's a difference. The pastor is not any closer to God than you are. He should live an exemplary life. He should be an effective worker in his own right, and he should be a trainer and equipper of others. But if he's properly trained and equipped you, you can do what he does just as well. In fact, Review and Herald, August 26, 1902. Our ministers are to go forth to proclaim the message of present truth to those who have not heard it. And our churches should not feel jealous and neglected if they do not receive ministerial labor. Have you ever noticed that? This is a progression. You can see it in, 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 the, in the documents we have and how a church becomes, is, you know, the, the whole thing about how a bill becomes a law, there's a whole process, right? The same thing, how does a company become a church or a gathering become a church? Well, there's a process, right? You have to be a company, and during that time, you don't have a pastor assigned to you. You're part of a, a mother church that is kind of tended to on the side, but you have to demonstrate a few things. You have to demonstrate a certain amount of attendance every week, a certain amount of evangelism, a certain amount of tithe. There's a, there's a rubric. There's a curriculum that you have to follow to become a full-fledged church. And all of those things are, are, are the demonstration that you're an actual legitimate church is self-sufficiency. That you have enough tithe dollars for coming in that makes financial sense. You have enough offerings. You have enough uh, membership. You have enough attendance. You have enough this that you can actually be standing on your own. Okay? And that's what you look for. And, but as soon as we become a church, we say, aha, now we've earned a pastor. Whew. We jump through all the hoops. Now we got ourselves a pastor. Now we're a real church. And if that church were to continue to grow, you know what we need? Two pastors. I don't have it included in here, but I guarantee you can look this up. It's almost verbatim. It does a church no good to have two or three ministers waiting upon it. Spirit of prophecy. I believe that's direct verbatim. It does a church no good. I don't recall. That's what I'm saying. I have to look it up in an app. But it's there. It does a church no good to have two or three ministers waiting upon it. By the way, the bigger the church gets, two or three looks pale. You need a half a dozen. In some cases, a dozen or more in one church. And they start divvying up the work. All right, this is going to be the one who does the preaching. That's the administrative one. This is, I kid you not, the internet one. This is the uh, children one. And you don't have youth. You have children and then youth. And then you have, like, I don't know where else. It's got every little demographic. This is the 34-year-old pastor. This is the 35-year-old pastor. The three, you know. 
Again, Review and Herald, August 26, 1902. Our ministers are to go forth to proclaim the message of present truth to those who have not heard it. And our churches should not feel jealous and neglected if they not receive ministerial labor. They should themselves take up the burden and labor most earnestly for souls. Believers are to have root in themselves, striking firm root in Christ, that they may bear much fruit to his glory. As one man, they are to strive to attain one object, the salvation of souls. That is the single purpose for your local church. is to be an agency for the winning of souls and the enlarging of Christ's kingdom. It is not, the statement continues, God's purpose that ministers should be left to do the greatest part of the work of sowing the seeds of truth. Men who are called to the gospel ministry are to be encouraged to labor for their master according to their several ability. Hundreds of men and women now idle could do acceptable service. By carrying the truth into the homes of their neighbors and friends, they could do a work for the master. God is no respecter of persons. He will use humble, devoted Christians who have the love of the truth in their hearts. Let such ones engage in service for him by doing house-to-house work. Sitting by the fireside, such men, if humble, discreet, and godly, can do more to meet the real needs of families than could a minister. Do you recognize that there are people that you have access to in your life that your pastor will never see? And not only do you have geographic or territorial, you're not just physically closer, but you have an emotional connection. You have, a, you, have a, you have this kind of, you have a relationship. You have influence that he won't have. And they might not go to the public campaign. I got nothing wrong with public evangelism campaigns. We should be doing them, but that's not all we should be doing. We'll come to this later, but if there was one work, if you had to choose between public and personal, let it be the personal. Go win souls. Soul winning is retail, not wholesale. One by one. May I help you? Can I show you something from the back? What can I do for you? It's not Costco. You know what I'm saying? Then I got a truckload of souls here. What is it? No. It's one by one, house to house, person to person. Gospel Workers 352. The work of God and the earth can never be finished. By the way, aren't you glad that there's no period there? Wouldn't it be awful if that was the end of the statement? Be the most discouraging spirit of prophecy. It can't be done. Let's bow our heads for prayer. No, no. The work of God and the earth can never be finished until. The men and women comprising our church membership rally to the work and unite their efforts with those of ministers and church officers. We all go on and on about finishing the work. But you know what's key to finishing the work? Starting the work. I've never yet completed a task I haven't started. That makes sense, yeah? We've got a church full of watchers, but what we need is a church full of workers. Which brings me to this closing, doing the wrong job well. Somebody asked, well, what's the diagnosis? How do you fix this? What's the issue? I don't think, let me be clear about this, I do not think it's because we have bad pastors or bad church members. I don't think anyone's bad, and I'm not throwing anyone under a bus. Let's be clear about that. But I do think we have the wrong expectations of pastors and church members, both by the pastors and by the church members. Okay? In recent years, many evangelism training schools have popped up all over the country and around the world. Have you noticed that? Yeah, they're everywhere. And I'm really torn about this. I mean, part of me is like, praise the Lord. There's a place where people can go and learn how to give Bible studies. But as a pastor, 
The other part of me is embarrassed that they have to exist in the first place. How is it possible that you're, you've been a member, perhaps a lifelong member of the church for 18, 30, 50 years? And you have to go somewhere and pay them money on top of the tithe you faith return, the offerings you generously give, to teach you how to give a Bible study. So part of my job as a pastor is to send people to those schools as fast as I can, then bring them home and train the people here so I can run that school out of business. Yes? And I love them. I've told this personally to the leaders of these two. Not every one of them, so they might be surprised I'm saying this. But for the most part, I mean, I've talked to them about I, I love the fact that we have, you know, Emmanuel Institutes and Arises and Souls and all the different nets, whatever. That, whatever acronym you throw, four, four letters on a wall and you'll get a, a name of a ministry. Okay? I love that they exist. I do. But as local Seventh Avenue churches, we should be doing their work. Amen. Statistically, though perhaps counterintuitively, territories with fewer pastors almost always grow faster. Go to the Adventist Statistics webpage. I can't give you the thing, but Google it. Look it up. You can get all the breakdowns by division and union and conference and local church. You can get all the statistics are right there, and it's usually one or two years old. It's very fresh. And just add them up. Get a little calculator. I did that. I didn't put the statistics in here because you're going to take it home and look mean. But look at the different territories. Just pick one territory, let's say in the Western world, and compare it to one territory in another part of the world. Look at the differences. And they tell you how many churches each pastor has, or on the average and typically the ones that have fewer pastors per individual church or more churches per individual pastor, let's say, the more churches that one pastor has, the faster that territory is growing. Now, a very reasonable argument could be made, and I want to be clear, I am not making this argument. But it could be made. Statistically, pastors kill churches. Kills maybe to harm. But I don't think it's because we have bad pastors. And I don't think they're doing a bad job. I think it's doing the wrong job very well. In most cases, they're doing your job. And you aren't doing any job. It's the wrong expectation of pastors by the pastors themselves, by the members, perhaps even by the conference leadership that employs them. Inspiration has warned and history has demonstrated that settled pastors lead to settled elders, settled deacons, settled membership. In the Seventh Adventist Church, member should mean missionary. When you say, I'm a member of the Seventh Adventist Church, that should imply that you are a soul winner for the Lord, bringing people into the Seventh Adventist Church as his last day remnant people. So we go back to Matthew chapter 9. As we close, Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. Double check, by the way, make sure it's always in your Bible. 
Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. What was Jesus doing, by the way? Look in verse 35, right before that. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. He was personally doing the labor. He was exemplifying the type of work that should be done. Preaching, teaching, and healing. Not necessarily in that order. But the crowds kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it was more than he could handle. It was just too much. It was multitudes. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like a sheep having no shepherd. They were just wandering around aimlessly. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We should not be praying that the Lord would slow down the work to meet our pace. We should be increasing our labor to match the need. Send forth laborers into the harvest. We're not going to have time for Q&A right now, but let me ask you this one question. Has what we've been talking about been clear and has it made sense? Could you raise your hand? Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I thank you so much that you have entrusted to us this tremendous responsibility of giving your gospel, especially in the days in which we are now living at the end of earth's history to all the world. Lord, help us to no longer be satisfied being mere watchers. But Lord, make us your workers. We may not know how. Maybe in a long time since we've done something, I have atrophied muscles, but Lord, Train us, equip us, exercise us, build us into workers. Lord, it's the prayer that every member, at least in this room, will leave with the zeal to be a missionary, hastening the coming of Christ. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.